Welcome to EIU Innovate. This is Ryan Hendrickson of Dean of the Graduate School at Eastern Illinois University, and we are pleased to have you with us today. Um, it is May 4th, the first day of final exams of the spring semester at EIU, and a strange and weird semester it has been, but we are concluding and, and near the end here. Uh, but for our um, last podcast, of the semester, I'm very pleased to have with us Dr. Rob Colombo. Um, Rob is a professor of biological sciences here, and he has been here since 2009. We might refer to him as a $3 million man as he's generated an, in over $3 million worth of grants during his time period here. He has published uh, somewhere in the range of 33 peer-reviewed papers and many of these papers, if not all of them, in some capacity have dealt with water and fish, whether it's been catfish, bass, silver carp, sturgeon, and I don't know, maybe more. We'll hear from Rob. So um, we're very, very pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Rob Colombo, and we look forward to getting underway. Rob, welcome to EIU Innovate. Thanks for having me. Rob, you've published a ton. You've been one of our most prolific scholars here at EIU. And certainly within the area of grants, uh, you, you know, you, you've made a name for yourself. Um, you've also run, won the Rodney Raines Graduate Mentoring Award, which is our top award for graduate faculty. So you've done some really, really great work here. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Let's talk about fish. Sure thing. I My mean, favorite subject. That is indeed your favorite subject. So um, we've got as I mentioned in our introduction here, about 33 different publications, and then some other ones beyond that, but 33 peer-reviewed publications. Mm -hmm. And as I was just going through the list, you know, they mentioned all kinds of fish. When did you get interested in fish, and how did this happen? That's a, it, it's a story I tell every, every student in every class that I ever had. When I graduated high school, um, so I am the youngest of four, and when I graduated high school, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My father was an electrician, and I was thinking that I would go uh, maybe along those lines, uh, maybe become an electrical engineer or something like that. And I started working in New York City and New Jersey as, an, as a communications person where I was doing electrical cabling and I was taking community classes, community college classes, and one of the things you had to do for those community classes was see seminars, right? I mean, everybody has to take speech communications as an undergraduate, and I was taking that class and they said, you have to go and see a seminar. The seminar I went and saw was about uh, Atlantic sturgeon uh, reproduction in the Hudson River, and I said, I went up to the, that was so amazing, I, I remember it clearly. I went up to the um, professor afterwards and I said, oh man, this is amazing. What do you do for a living? And he's like, I'm a fish biologist. And I go, yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah, that right? doesn't really exist, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, you can't do that. You, what, what else do you do? Are you a construction right. worker and this is what you do on the side? And he, no, he said, no, I, I work for the Cornell Extension. I'm a fish biologist. And the next day I started looking for positions that I could do that. I'd grown up fishing with my father, my grandfather, you know, so it was always something in my life, but I didn't know that you could make a career out of it. And luckily, I guess all my sisters had gone to college and, you know, they were in very pragmatic things. My, you know, one sister's a lawyer, my other sister 
is, you know, uh, was vice president of a bank, right? So um, by the time they got to me, my parents were a little bit more open. Oh, yeah, you could become that. So, and and I mean, you come home could, and say, I want to study fish. Yeah, and exactly. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here, Rob. Well, they think I fish. For, I mean, for a yeah. long time, for a very long time, my parents thought I just fished for a living. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. And All I right. said, well, well, the way I fish is a little easier than what people, other people do. Right. So that's, so that's your uh, early undergrad experience. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the light bulb went off uh, for me in that class, right? So. Okay. And then you ended up at uh, Southern Illinois mm -hmm. for your doctoral work mm -hmm. and got to us in 2009. Sure. Yeah. What keeps you interested in fish? I mean, I know you've been interested in water quality and the impact of water quality on fish. Yep. Tell us in general your findings. I mean, I, that's 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 not a very fair question in a way, but uh, <laughs> you know, because you got 33 plus different findings. But yeah, you know, thematically, what do we know about Illinois rivers mm -hmm. and sure. their impact on fish? Um, well, there's a, a lot of a lot of human-induced impact on fish, right, in Illinois. Now, number one, everybody knows, I mean, at least if you've been in Illinois for a while, if you watch the news at all, um, we do have this major concern of fish for fish in Illinois is the advancement of the Asian carp. And when I started at SIU, they, it was a relatively not known um, problem, right? I mean, we started to see them. So that has been um, a theme throughout my career in fisheries is, well, how do invasive species impact our populations? And what we see is that from when I started, so 2001, which is, that's when I started at SIU. It's not that long ago, if we talk about in terms of biological time, it's, it's, a, it's a drop in the hat. Yeah. And they've gone from being relatively unknown then to the largest biomass of any fish species in the Illinois River. And now they're taking over their, their, um, their populations are expanding in the Wabash River, which is where I spend most of my time, especially here at EIU. Um, they are having major impacts on the ecosystem. Specifically, if you look at are native fish that might be either at the same kind of level in terms of where they eat and then ones right below or maybe a, a, I would say a little bit higher the next level up that they would feed on they're affecting both of those groups right so our sucker fish um, which you know a lot of people don't fish for but they are one of the most important because you know, they're long-lived, they, they're a ton of biomass, they feed on macroinvertebrates, and then they become food for predatory fish. So these fish are super important to the, the river ecosystems, and, and we're seeing really a decline in their, con, their condition. And, and when we, as a fish person, you talk about condition, they're getting thinner for any size they are. So they're not, it seems like they're not getting enough food to eat. So one of the major uh, findings that we've had is that these suckers are starting to lose weight for any given length. So that's the, you know, the, like the bad kind of aspect that I look at these invasive species. But there's some other things that we can um, like hang our hat on that have been really uh, moving in a better trend, right? So when I first got here, my first grant was for $6,000 um, 
uh, well, six thousand dollars a year for three years, and uh, that's a little know, different from your other size of your grants. Yeah, I, would I mean, say. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that was pretty. Well, I was a known entity in Illinois at least a little bit, so I yeah. was able to bring. I mean, I the day I had, I stepped in this door. I had a grant, so that made me feel good, and I had yeah, enough. Yeah. And and I brought a graduate student on. But if I were to charge the DNR for that of the amount of work we did now, I'd probably be like, uh, you know, in the order of fifty thousand a year, and I was getting six. Yeah. Okay. It was, but it was right here on Kickapoo Creek. Okay. Um, and in two thousand one, a spill, Vesuvius, spilled furfural into Kickapoo Creek and killed a bunch of fish, two hundred thousand fish actually, and they had to pay restitution. So we did a habitat restoration there and on Gary Cole's property. Um, and it came out really great. And what we noticed is that with restoration, I mean, it's, it's called the field of dreams hypothesis. If uh-huh. you build it, they will come. Yeah. So with this built, with this new habitat came in, we got much higher fish populations in every group. So from, you know, sh- our shiners, which, you know, I call bait, but uh-huh. uh, there's 80 million different types of them in Illinois. There's um, I, my ichthyology class, they have to learn 40 different species of fish that are silver yeah. and about the size two inches, right? Um, and they all uh, lose their minds about that. But those did better, bass did better, um, catfishes did better, and um, sunfishes did better. So that was a good thing. So habitat restoration can serve to mitigate some of our, our, our fish problems. And then the other one that, that, um, that is more a, like you know a, a good story is uh, we've been working on the uh, Vermilion River and in Danville, Illinois, and I've been doing that since, uh, I want to say, uh, 2013, uh, and we probably published more papers off that project than any. Um, it's been where we've removed, they removed two dams, and uh-huh. we saw how, well, we're seeing how beneficial that can be really to smallmouth bass populations, which you don't find smallmouth bass in, in really in central Illinois. There's some pockets of them, the Kaskaskia has some, and then you can go to southern Illinois and find some in the Ohio River drainage, but it's a really really important sport fish and people that fish for smallmouth bass love it but it, they're they're uh the ability the, the chance to catch them is is relatively small so with these dam removals um, the smallmouth bass are doing um, better in the in that system now so yeah no i know the smallmouth i think i've caught one smallmouth bass and they're they're kind of famous for being putting up a pretty good fight oh they're amazing fighters. and they're but they're little i mean even little ones put up a pretty good fight yeah. but i didn't I caught that in Nebraska, not here. Yeah, I mean, and and so if you can develop these these new sport fisheries, uh, um, I'm always you know because I am a harvester. Uh, I know, <laughs> I mean, uh, I I always have gone by the adage that catch and release is playing with your food. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, <laughs> okay. you know, uh, but smallmouth bass, you know, the, that, that's one that I, I, would, I would catch and release. Well, so that's another question I want to ask you because uh, speaking of harvesting and catch and release, so let's say I do catch, um, I mean, something in one of the rivers that you work on. Mm-hmm. Would you eat it? Or is it going to depend upon the river? It's gonna do it. big time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you're on if you're in Decatur on the Sangamon, uh, absolutely not. Okay. Uh, one of my graduate students has been working, or several of my graduate students have worked on the Sangamon, 
and that is, you know, so you have ADM and Tate and Lyle that um, put their wastewater to the sanitary district of Decatur. And for some reason, the fish, and, and we've looked at a bunch of different, we looked at minnows, you know, so those small silvery fish. We looked at our suckers are a little bit bigger, but fairly silvery fish. And we've looked at catfish and they have these like these long fins yeah. for their body. It's, and no one else, I mean, I've talked to fish biologists all over the country and no one else has seen it at the level. These, um, you know, these really, or really large fins for their the body size. So there's something going on yeah. that's causing a malformation in their fins. Um, wabash, I would absolutely eat yeah. catfish out of the wabash and have, and I've eaten suckers out of there. Mississippi, absolutely, I've done it many times. Okay, all right. Well, I've always wondered that, and uh... and absolutely, absolutely, all of the lakes, all of the lakes, Lake Charleston. Great, great, great. Yeah, totally. Mattoon, fine. Um, there's probably some I would, I, you know, if you can always uh, go to the Illinois Sport Fishing Guide and they, they give you a idea on how many fish that you can consume from a given body of water per month. Now, if it's something like one per month, I'm not going anywhere near that. Yeah. Okay. You know, but if it's you know, <laughs> okay. nothing or you know, yeah. Now, you said we a number of times. Um, you know, we're working on the, uh, uh, you said the river up in Danville, and, and we are working on uh, the Wabash River. When you say we, um, of course, as graduate dean, I'm thinking uh, graduate students maybe you've got engaged in those projects. So tell, tell us about your collaborations with graduate students. Well, um, it's 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 an interesting um, kind of development, right? So we we at and we're called the Center for Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences. That's what we what we call ourselves, and we run like a team. So we generally will have six to eight graduate students in the program um, in fisheries, and. So when we're bringing in, and it starts from the very beginning, when we're bringing in a new graduate student, everybody has the right of refusal on that particular student. You know, so um, I have a researcher, Cassie Moody Carpenter, who is um, so invaluable to me that I, I, I don't know what I would do without her, but her and I conduct the phone interviews and then the uh, then we decide on who we're going to bring in to on campus um, so that first step is just you know because just there's so many people that apply and so then when we bring them on campus um, they meet with me they meet with Cassie they meet with uh, another an instructor in our program Dr. Eden Effort Fanta um, who is uh, a fish community ecologist, and then they meet with the graduate students, and everybody gets together at the end of that and says, okay, here's how that personality fits in our group. Because every graduate student I, I, that we talk to, my first comment to them is, you're gonna learn more from those other graduate students than you ever are from me. And that's how it works, you know? I mean, we have, uh, luckily we've, been successful in having grants so we've been able to have a lot of people on research assistantships so um, generally we'll have 
getting um, a bunch of se more senior graduate students and some junior graduate students and the senior graduate students train the junior graduate students and what we always tell the students is that you need to know the ins and outs of everybody else's projects because it's happened that somebody had to leave the grant people don't care that somebody had an emergency. I don't have PhD students that I can, um, that, are, that are around for four years and, and can kind of uh, deal with that way. And I don't have a huge research staff, I have one. Um, so, you know, it's happened in the past where there's been an emergency. So that's uh, a, another one of our graduate students has had to step in and take the place and make sure that we got the data and with as much quality as the person that was supposed to be doing it. And so it starts there, you know, it's a team. Everybody has each other's back in our, in our program. And that does a couple of things, right? It trains our students to be um, problem solvers. It trains our students to be really adept at all of the techniques that we do in fisheries. So like people, you know, you might be trawling on the Wabash River, like pulling a big net behind a boat, or you might be electrofishing on, which is the most amazing thing. If you ever get the chance to go electrofishing, it's the best thing you'll ever do. Um, <laughs> electrofishing on the Vermilion or, you know, setting nets somewhere else. Um, because my students have all of these tools when they graduate, they are so competitive for jobs, they don't even make it to May uh, of their second year. I mean, they're leaving for jobs in April um, and March, and they're finishing remotely their last, uh, the, the last bit of their graduate program. Yeah. So, well, I know so many of your students end up going to conferences, mm -hmm. which, uh, to the extent we can, the graduate school supports, sure, yeah. and you guys also uh, end up publishing with your students. Almost I mean, everyone it's just a published. tremendous record over there yeah. with with yeah. that kind of collaboration and mentorship. So, yeah. I mean, it's just a wonderful model for the rest of the university. Thanks. I was struck by one of your uh, publication titles: mm. uh, trade-offs of warm adaptation in aquatic ecotherms live fast die young yeah rob what's going on with that one okay so um especially live fast die young yeah I'm curious about that so uh this is this is actually a collaboration with a new professor who actually wasn't a professor here at that time Eloy martinez dr martinez and one of our old faculty members uh michael mentz dr mentz and one of my graduate students dr who is now Dr. Anthony Pareca. Um, so we work on, I, I mean, and this has been a long time, we work on power cooling lakes, and those are kind of going away. Um, but if you've ever been, uh, if, or if anybody's ever heard of Coffeen Lake or Newton Lake, these are um, coal-fired power plant lakes. So um, the way a, a coal-fired power plant works is it brings in water, and uses coal to boil that water and that pushes the turbine that makes electricity. Now they have all this hot water so you got to do something with that and they put it into a lake and that would be coffee, Newton, Springfield, there's a bunch of them, some are nuclear, some are coal-fired. And what we were finding in there is that bluegill don't, they grow really quickly for a couple of years and then they're dead. Uh-huh. 
bluegill should live six, seven, eight, nine years. They live three years in the power cooling lakes. Um, they don't get very large during those three years, but they that first year of growth is tremendous. They grow really quickly that first year. And then even that second year, they're growing really quickly. And then they just third year then they they're all gone kind of fish on steroid a little bit yeah so yeah. what we're finding is you know the, the largemouth bass and power cooling lakes do tremendously um, they don't live as long as normal largemouth bass but they get really really big uh-huh um so what we were looking at is well why is that why is bluegill do this and largemouth bass do well well i mean the simple answer is well there's always food available for largemouth bass whether it be the dead of winter there's gizzard chad or the middle of summer there's gizzard chad uh for bluegill you know their their food is tied to photo period all right so even though the temperature of these lakes is is warm all year round it's a great fishing they were great fishing opportunities all year round because they're putting hot water into the lake you know i mean really hot water it's at points in the middle of summer the water is you know 110 degrees and if the fish read the textbooks they'd be dead but they don't apparently (laughs) so we um we were trying to figure out why don't the bluegill do very well and and what we've come up with is that you know well the algae is really dictated by how long the sun's out and macroinvertebrates because of their evolutionary history the little bugs that bluegill eat um, they go into diapause in the winter because that's what they would do when there's ice on lakes or and that's what they're that's what they've evolved to do so there's no food available for bluegill during the winter although the temperature is at the level that they should be growing so it puts a lot of metabolic stress on them so they tend not to they live really fast and reproduce early and then they are gone yeah so live fast die young. i get it okay okay and have a really good looking corpse i guess yeah <laughs> Tell me about, um, I always ask our people on EIU Innovate where they write and when they write. Um, where physically? Um, generally, I write in my office. Yeah, here on campus? Uh, here on campus. Okay. Because um, I can shut my door and I don't have 80, I have three dogs um, yeah. barking. Okay. So um, it's, it's a fairly quiet place to, to contemplate. You know, generally... I am mostly editing uh, more than anything else what what graduate students do because that that's you know that's that's where I'm trying to get them to be scientists and working and that's I tell them that you're not done until you've disseminated those results so uh, mostly I'm editing and I do At that in point. my office okay yeah well I want to switch gears just a little bit. Well, still on fish, but a different perspective on okay. fish. Um, so I noticed at our uh, recent Board of Trustees meeting, we showed a video of all the faculty members who've been engaged in online learning. And like every other university across the United States, we've made some big changes at EIU. And in uh, mid-March, we transitioned everything to go online. And uh, at least for a lot of us administrators, we said, okay, well, you know, we know we can do this. We have wonderful faculty. But we also said, geez, there's going to be some classes that will be harder than others. 
And we especially thought, well, the labs, you know, how will they be able to do the labs? And But we trusted that we'd come up with, uh, that our faculty would come up with creative and interesting ways to do this. And um, in any event, at the Board of Trustees meeting in this video, we highlighted um, your efforts. And I know in the video you made the case that, you know, maybe you're even connecting with students in a better way. Or it's certainly a different way, but maybe a better way, I don't know. But um, tell us about your transition because you're a fish biologist. I mean, you're out in the water. Mm -hmm. You're really, truly, you know, outside doing your lab work. And yet you've been able to connect with students in a different, meaningful way that, at least on its face, seems to be working really well. Tell us about what you've done to adapt in the last six weeks. Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been an interesting six weeks. Well, number one, let me give credit where credit's due. There's two people that really um, kind of helped me with this process, and that's Mark Johnson um, from ITS here on uh, well from what used to be CATS. I don't know what department he's in. I think he's ITS. He was really helpful in helping me figure out how to go about doing this, and then my wife. Julia um, Colombo is working on her PhD at U of I, and it's online, which is it's um, educational design and leadership. And she had some tremendous ideas. Um, the reason I said in that video, and I, and I, I mean, I was teaching a dissection-based class, and I was really figuring, wait, this is not going to go well. Um, luckily, you know, I had I had that three days before the students left to figure out, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? So I gave each student an, a their, um, so a mink, a frog, a mud puppy, and a shark. And I said, okay, take it home with you. Um, <laughs> imagine bringing that home. Yeah, imagine. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. but here's the thing. Like, well, I, maybe I, this group is used to bringing that kind well, of stuff. Well, that's what yeah. I said, yeah. you know, when I was taking this class in college, I'd be, you know, I had a, I had a cat in a clear plastic bag and I would tote it uh -huh. from from the the life sciences building at in Syracuse to my apartment across campus you know carrying yeah. a dead cat in a bag I oh, was like yeah, okay well, whatever uh -huh. you know you do what you got to do so yeah. I was like you know they, they, they're they're all prepared they're all um, treated so it's not you don't have to worry about it do it in a you know well ventilated sp space but then I came we came up with the idea of well why don't we do this in real time where I'm dissecting and they're dissecting at the same time and I have a video camera uh, showing you know walking them through what I was doing and and I thought about it for a second and I was like you know this probably is a little bit better than what we do in the lab specifically because uh, you know, maybe I'm doing the dissection, or maybe I've done it before the students have come. So they, if they have questions, they'll come up and ask. But they're generally working on their own. You know, it's it's very self-guided. This was much more interactive because I would I would I would do the first incision, show them where I would do it. Yeah. I'd give them a couple of minutes to do that incision and then I would open up and then I would ask questions. All right, what are we seeing here? And what is this, this organ for? And, and you know, um, who has a female shark? Or, you know, what is the difference that you're seeing from the male that I have here? You know, so it, it, 
it made me think that number one, Microsoft Teams is amazing and I'm going to use it in every class that I teach, my lectures, which I don't really lecture, I, it's much more discussion. It's music to Tom Grissom's ears, um, yeah, Microsoft Teams. <laughs> I love that Microsoft Teams format um, and that you can incorporate OneNote so all the students had their own learning space. It was, it was, tr it was really, has opened my eyes to the, you know, the technology is there. Now, I've always, when I, I, I say lecture, but I don't lecture, I'm Socratic, so I ask questions and have the students kind of get to the answer that I'm trying to, to get them to. Um, but my PowerPoint slides are blank and I write on them. So I had a Microsoft Surface for that um, aspect, so the, this integrated really well. So I would write on the screen while I was talking and the students would answer questions. Now, did I make mistakes? Yes, I made several. Um, number one, I told the students not because I, I was worried about bandwidth. I said, you know, keep your microphone and video off. Yeah. Um, Cause I didn't know if it would be glitchy if I had all that, uh, all those people with video on how much, how much bandwidth I'd be taking up. And I come to find out, well, yeah, that probably wouldn't have been an issue. Um, so I would have rather have seen the students. And, um, you know, it took them longer to formulate an answer to my question in text rather than just... Right, longer set. pauses that yeah, they were laid pauses. out to type, type in their questions and stuff. Yeah, but, exactly. So yeah. that, that's, you know, made me not cover as much. But you know what? I, I'd rather students have a better understanding of a smaller amount of material than a cursory level of knowledge about a lot. That, that's my philosophy. Well, it was impressive because I did see that video of you dissecting the fish, I think. Uh, and yeah, it, it was a shark. And you know, I knew there'd be faculty such as you who would just really find creative and innovative ways to reach our students. And this was clearly a, just a huge success. So anyway, I, I, I love seeing it and want to thank you for Oh, no doing that outreach um, let's work to wrap it up here I you know I, I mentioned before we started talking that uh, I've become a little interested in fishing nice and uh, because of that and I have with my son especially and my daughters too so they we we're interested in fishing um, and on a real superficial note Rob let's let's talk about River Monster okay and Jeremy Wade all right I yeah. mean what, do you watch this guy I've seen them, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? That's a, it's an interesting show. There's another. There's another one show. It's called Monster Fish. Yeah. Um, and um, that's that's hosted by Zeb Hogan, um, who was in graduate school at the same time I was, um, and I got to know him a, a little bit. Yeah, the fish are just amazing. They right? really are amazing. The, the, Stuff that can grow and. Just... I mean, how big they get. I mean, you know. I, the first time I caught a hundred pound lake sturgeon, uh, I was floored. Number one, I was at that time, you know, I was probably 190 pounds. And that, that fish threw me around like I was weightless. I mean, yeah. the strength that a hundred pound fish has, cause they're all muscle. I mean, we've caught, we've caught flathead catfish. 65 pounds in the rivers around here and to see those things come up you're like what is Can't going believe on that that's down here? there yeah yeah what is going and what, what would this fish be like to catch you know they're 
there are just because fish have been around so long and um you know they've undergone so much uh, unique evolution there's they do everything weird that you can think of there's um you know i always tell the, the students the story of the anglerfish where they they couldn't they never could catch any male anglerfish they were wondering what's going on it turns out the male is a parasite a literal parasite of the female oh, and geez. it just looked like the female had parasites on it uh-huh. um and you know fish change sexes i mean there yeah. so there there's you know when you get into these monsters these huge fish arapima in the amazon we had i i mean i worked at shed aquarium for several years and we had these arapima gigas you know they're as long as a telephone pole are you kidding me wow. uh, yeah i mean and there are sturgeon in the west coast of the united states they get over a thousand pounds, you know, I mean that and come into our rivers, you know, it's, I mean, and forget about the salmon, salmon go out to sea and they're born in freshwater. And I know a lot of people know the plight of the salmon, but they're born in freshwater. Then they migrate to, to the sea and live in the sea for two, three years and then make it back to the same stream that they spawned in. Yeah, I can't amazing. find my car in a mall <laughs> parking lot after yeah, right. 20 minutes. Right. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And this fish is making it back to its thousands of miles and negotiating dams and bears and everything back to its natal stream, to its where it was reproduced and reproducing and then providing food for its offspring because it dies. It, I mean, just the most amazing things. And that's why I... You know, the students always say that I light up when I talk about fish, and I do because that's. And when you find that thing that you love to do, it's not work. I mean, it's yeah. it's. I I'm either riding my bicycle or I'm talking and thinking about fish. So, well, that's that's a pretty great conclusion because uh, you've done a fantastic job with your research and your teaching, and it's all centered around fish, and it's and their evolution and their plight or their conditions and uh, any event you've added so much to EIU so uh, well I couldn't have done it without all the graduate students that have come through and the undergraduates that have worked in the lab um, and it's just been I, I love EIU I don't I don't know why <laughs> it's a weird thing right I've been offered jobs at other places but there's something about this university that the students you know they they they, they're accountable for their mistakes and they work hard and it really is like a family here and i I, you know i i mean i i'm i'm eiu blue right when we got that tagline maybe three years ago that we were all in Mm -hmm. uh you know at first i thought ah boy i don't know about that but then i thought about it like that is perfect yeah it truly is spot on and people are here to support students, support faculty, and it does have a family kind of feel. Yeah, I mean, I've never been at, I mean, I, I, I've been at bigger universities, you know, I was at Syracuse, and, you know, I tell the students, you're not going to, you know, you're going to get as good an education here at, at Eastern as you would at the University of Illinois, but you're going to have a much better experience because I'm going to know your name, and I'm going to know what you want to do with your life, and I'm going to help you get there, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you successful. And, you know, if you're a 
research faculty at a large university, you just don't have that. I mean, you have to be much more cutthroat about getting the grants and making sure that um, they're getting done than worrying about um, a student in your ecology class. So that's, that's what I love about it here. Rob, you're doing awesome work. Thank you. Thanks a million for coming Thanks on for EIU. And, and uh, speaking of a member of our family, uh, Tom Grissom, uh, our long longtime producer, is um, retiring here in this, at the uh, end of June. And uh, among the people who are going to miss him tremendously is me because he has been uh, instrumental to making sure EIU Innovate, this podcast, took off and has helped things move along. And uh Tom, I'm going to miss you a ton, and uh, good luck in your retirement. And thank you for all you do for EIU Innovate. And listeners, thanks for tuning in, and thanks a million. Thank you.